everyone. My name is Josh Scroggins. I pastor New Beginnings Family. Just wanted to say thank you for joining our podcast and welcome. We hope the following message will be encouraging, will inspire you to grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us or would like to support our ministry financially, you can visit our website at www.nbfamily.net. And as always, for all you do to support us, thank you. God bless you and enjoy the message. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for joining me again. We are in episode number seven of our series called The Battle Focusing on Spiritual Warfare. The theme verse for this series, Ephesians 6.12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, against this world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible is full of incredible stories of faith and miracles of And of all the miracles that are described in the Bible, uh, there is one that really seems to stand out as especially incredible. That miracle is found in the passage that we're exploring today, when a man addressed the sun and addressed the moon, and they obeyed. In this episode, we're going to go back to the story we talked about last week, because there's a powerful moment we skipped over that we need to come back to. Uh, We talked about how Israel was deceived into a covenant, because they did not seek the Lord for counsel. And we talked about how they were drawn into a battle shortly afterward because of that. And since we're in a spiritual warfare series, what I want to do is I want to pull out something significant that happened in that battle, because it gives us some powerful tools we can use when we're doing spiritual warfare against the enemy. Particularly, these are going to be some powerful truths that I feel like we can we can learn from this story. And uh, <clears throat> what I would like to do first is just kind of set the scene. Um, Israel had made a covenant with Gibeon. We talked about this in the last episode, that all of the kingdoms of uh, Canaan basically had started coming together, gathering their armies together uh, to come against against Israel. And, and it makes sense, right? I mean, Israel had about 600,000 soldiers. That is that is an unfathomably, unfathomably large, um, large army, especially back then. That's That's a big army now, but that was an especially large army back then. They they could just overwhelm people with those kind of numbers. And so all of these kings basically were bringing all of their troops together uh, to, to fight against Israel. And one of those nations, Gibeon, betrayed them and instead allied themselves with Israel. They, they deceived Israel into a covenant, but then they made covenant with Israel. And so all of these other kings, all these other kingdoms, would have seen this as a betrayal. And so, of course, they thought this is very dangerous because one of our own has betrayed us. But more than that, it was also dangerous because Gibeon was a fortified city. And and by allying themselves with Israel, that now gave Israel a fortified city. Uh, as a result of this, the five kings came against Gibeon to attack it, and Israel came to defend it. Joshua used a tactic called a uh, forced march. What is a forced march? Well, a forced march is when you do not allow your army to rest. You say, we have to get from this point to this point, and we're going to do so as quickly as possible. We are not going to stop to rest. We are not stopping and setting up camp. We are going to march all the way through the night. We're going to march all the way through the day. We're going to get there as quickly as possible, even if that means that we arrive fatigued. Now, that does seem a little dangerous, right? You show up and, uh, 
your army is fatigued because they didn't have rest. And that is the risk of using a tactic like this. However, what you're counting on, if you're using a forced march tactic, is that you are catching the enemy unaware and that the disadvantage they have from being caught unaware is larger of a disadvantage than you have from your army being fatigued. And so it's it's a roll of the dice. It's a gamble uh, to, to do that, to use a forced march. Uh, however, it can be an incredibly effective tactic. And Joshua does use that. He uses this to, to have his army march all the way through the night. They don't set up camp. They just march and they go straight to where they're going. And when they arrived, possibly before dawn even had had come yet, uh, God used the darkness and the surprise attack from the Israelites, right? Remember, this is a force march. So chances are that, that the uh, the armies coming against Gibeon figured that they had at least a day before Israel showed up and they were planning on, on you know, take camp that night and maybe maybe launch an attack the next day. We don't really know exactly what their tactics were, but it, it's very likely they expected it would, it would be longer before Israel showed up. And so to all of a sudden be hit uh, in the middle of the night, or very, very early in the morning, uh, it was something they just weren't prepared for. And so God used the darkness, he used this surprise attack, and he sows confusion into the enemy. And while they are running from Israel, God sends a huge storm that drops hailstones all over them. It kills a lot of them. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us that more enemies were killed by the hailstones than were actually killed by the Israelites. Uh, now, at some point during that day, we don't know exactly where we were at in that fight, but at some point, the sun was starting to come up. It was morning. And, and why do I say that we don't exactly know? Well, because it is very likely that the book of uh, uh, the chapter um, 10 of Joshua is actually three different tellings of the same passage <clears throat> or uh, I'm sorry, of the same battle. So you have the uh, you have the first account that happens um, through the first the first several verses, and then you have uh, another telling with with what we're going to read here, verses twelve to to fourteen. But then you also have it told again um, where where they're pursuing the kings, and and uh, one one very common interpretation of Joshua 10 is that this story is actually being told three times from three different perspectives. That all of this was happening during that day. But this is not necessarily a chronological order. Uh, so what we do know is this. At some point during that day, the sun was starting to come up. It was morning. And then we get to the text that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> um, now, real quick, before we before we read this text, I want to just explain there is a common interpretation of this passage. And that was this, that, that the Israelites had been fighting. Uh, they had been fighting all day long. The sun was starting to go down. They needed more time. Right. They needed more time to fight and the sun was going down. And if they didn't, uh, if they didn't have more light, they were going to have to stop fighting and the, and the, the enemy might have got away. Right. And so Joshua, who wanted more time for the day, he 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 prayed for the sun and the moon to stop in their place so that they could continue to have light and continue to keep fighting. That's the most common interpretation. I've heard that quite a bit. Um, let me just say very, very plainly. That, that, that's not possible based on what we see in the text. Uh, number one, they had come through the night, right? They had marched all night long to get to this battle. And then right after that, we see them fighting. And, and then Joshua uh, says what he says here. And we're going to find out just, just geographically, we're going to find out that the common interpretation 
doesn't actually fit with with the text. But let's let's read the text real quick because this is this is what I'm saying is that this this was actually not said at the end of the day. This was said at the beginning of the day. This was in the morning when this happened. It was not it was not toward the end of the day when the sun was setting. I'll explain that more in in a minute here, but let's read the text. Joshua 10 verses 12 to 14. Joshua spoke to the Lord on the day when the Lord turned the Amorites over to the son of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon at the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jeshar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hurry to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So what did I, do I mean about the morning? Well, on the, on the map, you can take a look at a map and you can, you can look where, where is Gibeon and where is the Valley of Ajalon? Where, where is Ajalon? Because Israel is in the middle of those two. <clears throat> this is where this battle took place. Well, when you look at the map, what you find out is that when Joshua said this, he actually would have been to the west of Gibeon. But he's saying, sun, stand still at Gibeon. That means that the sun, when he was looking at it, was actually in the east. Well, well, what time of the day is the sun in the east? It's in the morning. So here's the question. Um, Did the sun and moon really stop? Did the earth stop its rotation? Wouldn't that present a lot of other problems if it did? I mean, did something else happen? Should this text be taken literally or maybe taken as a metaphor? What I want to do is before we get to the meat of the message, I want to deal with a difficult interpretational challenge that this passage presents. And what I want to do is I want to share with you five common interpretations of this passage. So here's the first one is a literal reading, right? This is one of the interpretations of what we just read, a literal reading. Um, It's just like it says what it says. That's exactly what happened. Uh, let me let me be very clear though that nobody actually does that. No nobody actually literally reads this passage and interprets this literally as the way it's written. And and before you get mad at me, before you say no no no, pastor, that's blasphemy. Let let me let me explain that. Uh, the golden rule of hermeneutics, which is interpretation of scripture, is that we should always interpret a passage literally unless a literal interpretation is not possible. For instance, if, if the Bible uses a phrase like the four corners of the earth, right? We know the earth doesn't have corners, right? So, so we can't take that literally. Um, if it says the rising and the setting of the sun, we can't take that literally because the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set, right? We understand that, that what we see as a rising sun or a setting sun, it's an optical illusion based on the fact that the earth is rotating. And in this passage, it says the sun stood still. But if you, if you were to just say, I'm going to translate this passage literally exactly what it says, that is, is literally what happened, then that means that you also have to believe that the sun was moving and, and then stopped. But nobody actually believes that, right? If you ask a person, well, how did this happen literally? They probably will say something along the lines of, well, I believe that God stopped the earth from rotating. And, and, and maybe that's what happened. But just just know that if your interpretation of this is that God stopped the earth rotation, then you're not actually interpreting this passage literally, because what you're saying is, is that that when it said the sun stopped, that wasn't literal. The earth actually stopped, not the sun. So I I just want to be very clear that that nobody actually does a, a literal reading of this. 
Um, unless you're somebody that, that is one of those, uh, just you're a flat earther, you believe the earth is, is stationary and that the sun actually moves and that the earth doesn't. And if you believe that, then maybe you actually do take this uh, literally. But for the rest of us who, who understand the way that the solar system works, um, we, we understand that, that this is, uh, that this is not a literal interpretation at best. A person can say that this text is literally describing what people witnessing it perceived, but it's not literally describing what happened yet. That is still an interpretation, right? Is that God stopped the rotation of the earth. And, and let me just be very clear that would, if that, if that's what happened, this is a massive, massive miracle that takes place here because if the earth were suddenly to stop rotating, every person on the planet would fly to the East at about a thousand miles an hour. All of the, all of the atmosphere around the earth would create thousand mile an hour winds, all of the uh, waves, all of the ocean water, right, would have massive, massive tidal waves that would come up and just cover all of the land. Uh, there, there's a lot of problems that, that would happen if the earth just suddenly stopped. And, and it's not to say that God couldn't prevent all of those. He absolutely could. He's God. And so, but I'm just saying that if, if what you believe is that the earth just stopped rotating, then this is a, this is an incredibly massive miracle. Uh, so that is one interpretation, but here's another one. Another interpretation of this passage is that what happened was a total solar eclipse. Now that that seems a little odd, but let me let me explain why this is a theory. Uh, the Hebrew word damam, d a m a m, is translated um, in English as stand still. However, that's not actually what the word means. <clears throat> not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word means to make silent. And so uh, it, it also, by the way, it has the same root word. That Hebrew word has the same root word as the Babylonian word for eclipse. Cambridge researchers have stated that this eclipse was on October 30th, 1207 BC. So that is a, um, uh, that, that's one theory is that because that word means silent, right? To make silent or to be blocked out. At least that's that's one way that it can be translated because of this same root word as the Babylonian word for eclipse. People say that's that's what happened, that what he was actually praying for was an eclipse, not for not for a halting, not for a stopping of the spinning of the planet. But that when we translate this to English and we see the word stand still, it's difficult. Uh, It's difficult to to understand that. Uh, But that's not what this word means. So that that is one interpretation. Um, another interpretation is that there was a hailstorm. Well, we know that, right? We know there was a hailstorm because the Bible talks about it. Um, but this view basically says that the sun and moon were blocked out, right? Or silenced or demam made to stand still. Uh, they, they were blocked out by the storm and that the storm continued for a full day, giving the Israelites time to win the fight. Uh, number four interpretation and explanation is that this was a local phenomenon. This was not the entire planet stopping. This was not the sun itself stopping. This was uh, not anything actually that stopped moving. But instead, what God did is he lit up the sky miraculously, creating the appearance of daytime for an extended period, giving the Israelites daytime. And it was it was local. <clears throat> uh, the, the last in- explanation here. It's, it's a little, it's a little more, um, it's a little more sophisticated, not to say that it it makes it more accurate, but it's, it, it it takes a little bit more understanding of language and, and culture. Um, but the last interpretation of this passage 
is that Joshua 10 was a, it was poetic first and, and also it was using the language of omens, not the language of science. Uh, this interpretation comes from scholars Mark Shavalos and John Walton. Uh, again, it's a bit nuanced, but in essence, it treats this text as an ancient text rather than a modern scientific one. Um, in, in other words, it's possible that the words or phrases we read in English don't mean the same thing to us that the Hebrew words or phrases meant to the ancient people who wrote them. Uh, for instance, imagine if someone thousand years from now were to read a newspaper article that used the phrase, the sky is falling. Now, we know that that phrase simply means that a situation is disastrous, right? But maybe to them, a thousand years from now, they might think we meant something else entirely, right? That maybe we thought the sky was actually falling, or maybe they would think that the sky actually did fall. Or they might think this is talking about a meteor shower or what, but it's not at all what we were saying. We were just saying that something was disastrous and we use the phrase, the sky is falling. So what I want to do is I'm going to, I'm going to uh, play the audio from a, from a video that I shared with our church on Sunday and just give you kind of a, an, a little bit more of a, an explanation of what this theory is like. Joshua 10 says that Israel went to fight a battle against five Amorite armies and to defend their allies at Gibeon. When they arrived, it records this. At the time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. The modern interpretation is that Israel was winning, but the sun was about to set, and therefore, both sides would have had to stop and wait for daylight. To prevent this from happening, Joshua prayed the sun would stop moving so Israel could finish with their victory. But this interpretation doesn't make sense with the actual text, because it says when Joshua uttered this, it was in the morning. Joshua 10.8 says the men of Israel marched all night so they would have arrived at Gibeon in the morning. It also says the sun was over Gibeon and the moon was in the valley of Aijalon. With Israel in the middle, this would place the sun in the east, not the west, meaning the sun was rising, not setting. This alone would refute the idea that when Joshua uttered this prayer, it was because he was worried the sun was setting. Based on what the text says, it had just risen in the east. So why would Joshua pray such a thing when they already had a full day to fight? The idea Joshua was worried the sun was setting doesn't actually make sense with the text. The scholars John Walton and Mark Shavalos say in the ancient Near Eastern context, Joshua is not claiming the sun literally stopped moving. Instead, he was merely using the language of almonds to destroy the morale of his enemies. We tend to think in terms of physics when we read this passage, but they were speaking in terms of almonds. In numerous ancient texts, we read the timing and position of the sun and moon were seen as important for the outcome of battles. In fact, in these almond texts, we see language of the sun and moon stopping, standing, or waiting. First, ancient cultures of the Near East determined the beginning of a month by the appearance of the new moon. When the full moon appeared, it would help determine the length of the month. In fact, for a few minutes in the morning, when the full moon appeared, it would be with the rising sun in the sky. So the celestial objects would have been seen in the sky together. Now if the full moon appeared on the 14th day, it would have been considered a good omen 
and the proper length of time. Months that were 29 days were considered hollow, while months that were 30 days were called full. Thus, if the full moon and the sun were seen together on the 14th day of the month, it was considered a good omen and a sign of good things to come. One omen reads, If on the 14th day the moon and the sun are seen together, the speech of the land will become reliable, the land will become happy, the gods will remember Akkad favorably, joy among the troops, the cattle of Akkad will lie in the steppe undisturbed. If, however, this event occurred on another day, or weather prevented anyone from seeing when the sun and the full moon were together, it was considered a bad omen. To quote, If on the fifteenth day the moon and the sun are seen together, a strong enemy will raise his weapons against the land. The enemy will tear down the city gate. If on the thirteenth day the moon and the sun are seen together, unreliable speech. The way of the land will not be straight. There will be footsteps of the enemy. The enemy will take away booty in the land. Omens like these were considered to be extremely important in determining the outcome of battles, and also for determining the day on which the battle should take place. If the battle took place on the wrong day, with the timing of the sun and the moon off, it would be considered bad and assured that their army would lose. And this is likely what is taking place in Joshua 10. Joshua asked God for the sun and the moon to appear on a specific day and in a way so that his enemies would interpret it as a bad omen. What is interesting is in Joshua, we see similar language to what is found in Almond texts. These texts often refer to the moon waiting for the sun. It does not mean the moon literally stopped moving so the sun could catch up. It refers to the moon still being in the sky when the sun rises. We also see texts, as it is in Joshua, stating a celestial object is standing over certain places. Walton says, The words stand and wait, or not, do not refer to taking up specific positions in the sky. They refer to the coordinated movements of the celestial bodies in the given context. For example, we see almond texts refer to certain celestial objects standing. If the field star comes close to the front of the moon and stands there, variant, there will be an attack of the enemy. If the old man star comes to stand close to the top of the moon and enters the moon, the king will stand in triumph. If the sun stands in the halo of the moon, in all the lands, people will speak the truth. The sun will speak truth with his father, universal peace. If the moon stands in a stable position, waiting for rain. Interestingly enough, we see another text that sounds similar to what we read in Joshua. The heavens continually rumbled, the earth continually shook, the sun lay at the horizon, the moon stopped still in the midst of the sky. In the sky the great lights disappeared, an evil storm, the nations, a deluge swept over the lands. In Joshua 10, the key verbs are translated as stand still and stop. Walton notes the Semitic range of the Hebrew word for stop also includes the meaning of to wait. Therefore, the language of Joshua 10 fits with almond texts, which speak of celestial objects standing and waiting. In the ancient Near Eastern context, Joshua is asking God to have the sun and moon appear in a way that would dismay the Amorites. The sun and the moon may have appeared on the wrong day, and the Amorites would have seen this as an omen, meaning their defeat was imminent. You've now heard five different explanations for this passage. right? For instance, a literal reading, a total solar eclipse, a hailstorm that continued a full day, a local phenomenon, or just a, a language of omens rather than a language of physics and science. 
Regardless of which one you believe is the correct interpretation, one thing is for sure. The interpretation that the Israelites fought all day long and as the sun was going down, Joshua asked for more sunlight. That interpretation needs to be ruled out. The sun was to the east of Joshua, meaning that Joshua clearly addressed the sun in the morning. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because it means that Joshua was calling out something before it ever happened. It means that he was authoritatively speaking into his future and declaring that nature itself must submit to the people of God. He was calling out what day he was about to have before he ever had it. Verse 14 tells us that there was no day like this before or since. It was the faith that he had, that he spoke out, that moved the hand of God. Now, why does verse 14 say that there was never a day like it before or since? Well, it's not because of the what happened with the sun and the moon. It says that the reason that there was nothing before or since is because God allowed a man to suggest a divine battle plan and the Lord listened to it. There's three incredible things that we can learn from this passage about spiritual warfare. And here's the first one. Sometimes God fights for us, but always fights with us. I'm going to say it again. God sometimes fights for us, but he always fights with us. In Egypt, God fought for Israel. They didn't have to do anything. He did everything. But in Jericho, in Ai, in this battle, Israel actually had to do something. They actually had to get up, they had to walk, they had to fight, they had to do something. With Jericho, they walked, God knocked the walls down, he took care of the walls, but they still had to go up and take the city. In Ai, they had to fight. In this battle, they had to fight. Now, God fought alongside them. As they fought, God fought with them. He sent confusion, he sent hailstones, he performed something noteworthy in the sky that day, but they had to fight. You cannot always expect that God is going to just fight for you. Usually God chooses to fight with you, meaning that you have to fight. It is not a good strategy to just assume that God will always fight for you and do everything for you. Because more often than not, God is wanting to fight with you and he will not fight for you until you are fighting as well. And then he will join in. He will reinforce you. Oftentimes, God begins where our strength ends. God begins where our limitations end. And that's when he comes in. That's when he begins to work. And so it's very important to understand that. Otherwise, we can get locked into this belief that God is just going to do everything for us. And then we get frustrated when he doesn't. When you are willing to do the hard things, it gives God a platform to shine. Israel had to march all night long and then go into battle. That was so difficult. But then God used this ambush and the darkness of night to sow confusion into the enemy. It gave God a platform. When you are willing to fast, to sacrifice, to pray for long periods of time, to make hard changes in your life, to give God a platform like this, what happens is that you do, you give God a platform to move in your life, something that he can shine from, something that he can show off in. When you are willing to do hard things, when you are willing to sacrifice, when you are willing to give, when you are willing to make changes, when you are willing to do things that are difficult, what you do is you give God a platform. When you're willing to say, God, I will do everything I can do 
up until the point that I no longer can do anything. And then God, I'm going to trust you to take over from there. He will. He absolutely will. God will, will allow you to go as far as you can possibly go until you need him. And then he will step in and take over where you, where you can't. He will do what you can't. But it require, for God to do what you can't, you have to do what you can. And, and, and it's not always that case. Sometimes God does absolutely just fight for us. But that is not a spiritual strategy. That is not a battle strategy. Not for us. When we're talking about spiritual warfare, it is, it is not a good battle strategy to assume that God will just do everything for you because most of the time he won't. Most of the time we have to do hard things. We have to sacrifice. We have to fight. We have to pray. We have to, we have to fast. We have to make changes. We have to do these hard things. And then God steps in. And that's an important truth to understand about spiritual warfare. Number two is that speaking out in faith can shift the tide of battle. Some of you guys right now, you're in a battle. You, you just spiritually speaking, mentally speaking, emotionally speaking, you're in a battle. You're in war. You're, you're dealing with something very difficult. And, and let me tell you that speaking out in faith can shift the tide of that battle. In, in his book, uh, Sun Stand Still, Stephen Furtick tells about the church that he planted. And for those who don't know Stephen Furtick, he, he's the pastor of Elevation Church. It's a, it's a massive church. Um, they they are, are very, very big. But at the time, in 2006, they weren't. He He's telling this story about this church he planted. And the story that Stephen Furtick tells begins at a U2 concert in 2006. With the arena packed, Stephen Furtick turns to his friend and says, One day, our church will fill this arena for a worship service. He believed God for the impossible, and in 2010, he was pulling up to Time Warner Cable Arena in Charlotte. There's a line of people wrapped around the building, but they weren't there to see Bono. They were there to worship at Elevation Church and to listen to Furtick preach. The question I would have for you is this. Are you willing to speak with that kind of faith? Are you willing to call out that kind of blessing? Look, great faith might mean that 25,000 people are going to listen to you speak. It also might mean that you're going to stay married for 67 years. It might mean that your kids are going to believe in the gospel. It might mean that you've got an extra $100 a month to give towards missions because your mortgage is paid. But are you going to speak in faith? Are you going to speak it out? Your words have tremendous power. Spiritual warfare involves not only asking God for miracles and not only listening to God's directions and following them. It involves not only moving forward in faith and not only dealing with things that hinder victory. Spiritual warfare also involves speaking out in faith that you will be victorious. How often do you do that? How often do you speak in faith out loud to yourself and to others about what you believe God is going to do in your life? But I'm not talking about a thus saith the Lord, right? I'm not talking about issuing prophecy. I'm simply talking about speaking in faith according to what you know is the will of God. To say, God is going to set me free. I believe that God is going to bless me. I believe that the situation that I'm in right now, that I'm struggling with right now, is not where my story ends. 
to speak out in faith. God is going to heal me emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally. God is going to heal my family. I believe that God, uh, that's the kind of thing. I believe that God is going to save my kids. I believe that God is going to save my family. I believe that God is going to use me to make a difference in this world. It is speaking out in faith. How often do you speak in faith out loud to yourself and to others about what you believe God is going to do in your life? It's, it's important to take note of the fact that Joshua spoke out in front of all the people to tell the sun and the moon what to do, how to obey. Now, before this, he had been speaking with God. But then he speaks to the sun and he speaks to the moon. He addresses the sun. He addresses the moon and he tells them to remain still or to be silent. And he did so in front of all the people. If he would have got it wrong, imagine, imagine what they would have said about him. Imagine what they would have done to him. Imagine what could have happened. The fact that he spoke that out in front of people, that took incredible faith. And the question I have for you is, are you willing to take a risk on God? Are you willing to speak out in faith in a way that, that requires you to trust God? That if God doesn't come through, you're in trouble. Are you willing to speak with that kind of faith? Because speaking that kind of faith out can absolutely shift the tide of battle. And here's the, the, last, the last thing I would tell you as far as a, 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 a truth that we can bring out of this, out of this story that, that applies to spiritual warfare. I would say this, number three, speak to the sun. Joshua spoke to the moon. He addressed the moon. He addressed the sun. S U N son. When he did that, God listened and agreed with him and did something incredible that day. We are to speak to the son S O N. We're not called to pray to the saints. We're not called to pray to ancestors. We're not called to pray to angels. We're not called to pray to Mary. We're not called to pray to priests or popes. First John 5, 13 to 15 tells us we are to pray to Jesus. It says, these things have I written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that is Jesus, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request which we have asked for him. Yes, we need to pray according to his will, but we also have to ask him in the first place. There's so much power in the name of Jesus. You should use that name often when you pray. And that is especially true when it comes to spiritual warfare. To invoke the name of Jesus is to bring a spiritual bazooka to the battlefield. Yes, you must be using that name in accordance to his will. But when you do so, you will feel the power of that name as you use it. Joshua stood before the people and he called out for the very heavens to fight on behalf of his people. We have a Joshua as well. That Joshua is able to speak to creation itself on our behalf. That Joshua is our advocate, our commander, our guide. That Joshua is the high priest that has been tempted in every way that we have. And that Joshua has been able to do so without ever sinning. Are you confused yet? Do you know how Joshua is pronounced in Hebrew? Yeshua. 
Do you know how that name is pronounced in Greek? Jesus. See, in Hebrew, Jesus and Joshua are actually the same name. Joshua is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus was the perfection of what Joshua was a pale imitation of. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Today, I want to encourage you to call out to the Son, to call out to Jesus. He is standing between you and the Father, waiting for you to approach Him so that He can give you mercy and so that you can find grace for help. Do you need that? Do you need God's mercy? Do you need His grace? Then it's time to address the Son. It's time to ask Jesus for what you need. It is time to speak out in faith and to trust that as long as you are praying according to his will, that he will hear those requests and more than that, he will move on behalf of them to bless you because he loves you. God bless you. You have an amazing week. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us at New Beginnings Family. We appreciate you listening and hope that the message was encouraging, inspiring, challenging, that ultimately it brings you closer to Jesus Christ. If you have any questions for us or would like to get a hold of us, you can reach out to us at www.nbfamily.net. Thank you so much. We love you. Have an amazing day. And thank you for all your support. We'll see you next time.